So our reading is uh, Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. And before we read, we'll just have a moment of prayer. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word again, we thank you that you desire to speak to us through your word. And you have divinely appointed this means of communication of your word in its preaching. And so, Father, we do not expect that automatically, just because we're reading it and because somebody's trying uh, weakly to explain it, that you will come. But rather, we crave your presence, that you would come amongst us in response to our prayers and to our hearts. And that you would take up this word that is before us and speak into our hearts. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together. In the days of Aramphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, Kedileomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedarleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedarleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedarleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Aramphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, 
And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. In a busy world, with busy lives, we might become unaware that God is deeply concerned about our lives, and we might forget what he is concerned about in our lives. And we may end up focusing on the wrong priorities. And I think this passage teaches us something of this. And we see here remarkable courage and heroism in the midst of these events. And by the end of the chapter, we see that in spite of his heroism and his great exploits, Abraham is totally focused on the glory of God. And we see in this passage a remarkable uh, indication from God of the future, his future intent in the appearance of Melchizedek. He's only referred to in passing, by Ab- uh, in passing, as it were. But the story, uh, God is only mentioned in passing. Uh, God is not, doesn't seem to be active in the story, yet his footprints are all over the story. And this is something we always need to see in narratives in the Old Testament. That sometimes God is not mentioned explicitly, he doesn't seem to be active at all, and yet it is all about what God is doing in fulfilling all his promises. So I think the first thing we need to remember from a passage like this is, first of all, to believe that the Lord is at work in the midst of current affairs. That the Lord is at work in the midst of current affairs. The first 12 verses of this chapter are taken up with a description of what is going on in the region where uh, Abram and Lot live. You may remember that Abram and Lot 
had to come to an accommodation with one another to decide to separate part ways in chapter 13. And Lot had opted to go to the, the fertile valley to the east of where they were, uh, to the southern end of the Jordan River. So you can just imagine the Jordan Valley is a fertile place with lots of uh, uh, potential for profit and growth. And Lot goes there. And Abraham says, well, if you go there, I'll go here. So he goes west. He goes westwards to Canaan. And uh, what these 12 verses do at the beginning is, as it were, it zooms out from Abraham and Lot to see the big picture of geopolitics. What's going on in the nations around Abraham and, and Lot? And what's going on is something of a rebellion that's taking place. And so what we have here is five kings. And what you need to understand, of course, is that uh, kings were often kings of cities, uh, small, uh, relatively small cities. And every uh, center of population would have a king, somebody who's in charge and was called the king. And every so often throughout history, this is t- you're talking about 2,000 years before Christ, uh, some king would become dominant and begin to dominate over other kings in other cities nearby. And sometimes those big kings would be far away. And what we have here are five small kings in the region around the Dead Sea that's at the southern end of the River Jordan. And they rebel against four big kings. And the chief amongst them seems to be Kedarleomer. Uh, who comes from Elam, which is in the western end of modern-day Iran. So it's quite far away. And Kedarleomer comes to make war against these vassal kings. So he has these suzerain kings, these big kings that are gathered with him to fight against these vassal kings in the southern end of the Jordan Valley. And so that we have this rebellion, and you notice that step by step, Kedarleomer reestablishes his rule. So from verses 4 to 7, the place names and the people will be unfamiliar to us, but they trace a route from north to south. So you imagine Damascus in the north, going down the the hill country uh, to the east of the Jordan, and fighting battles and coming to the south to where... Uh, The Dead Sea is the Salt Sea. And he fights battles in the southern region as well. And eventually he faces off against these five rebellious kings uh, from Sodom and and Gomorrah. And all this time he is plundering and taking possessions and people and slaves and so on. Kedileomer. So that's the background to the story. But here's the... You know, it's all very interesting, but why is Moses telling us about this big picture story of geopolitics? Well, it's in verse 12. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way.
God's dealings with people and with his people are never carried out in a hermetically sealed environment which is separated from the rest of the world. As though somehow God's work in the world involves something that's only going on in the corner, detached from real events. Sometimes we can think about that as Christians. That God is only doing things locally where I am. But God is the sovereign Lord. The possessor of heavens and earth. And he is at work in all of it. And what guides his work is the promises that he has made. And the people that he has gathered up into his promises. So Abraham and Lot. What the Lord is doing here is he is setting the scene for what is really important in history. God's dealings with his people. And so verses 1 to 11 give us, as it were, a 30,000 foot big picture uh, uh, view of what's happening. And then it zooms in to Lot and Abraham. And what is God doing here? And whatever we may think about Lot's decision making, which we looked at last week in chapter 13, where he seems to have acted on the basis of his, of his eyes. I, I see that that's a good thing, so I'm going to go with my eyes. I'm going to go to Jordan, the Jordan Valley. We may criticize that. And don't we as Christians often act that way? <laughs> We're all open to that kind of criticism, aren't we? We act with our eyes rather than faith. Yet elsewhere in the Bible, Lot is described as Lot the righteous. Uh, to Peter, two seven, Peter describes Lot as a righteous man. So although he's led with his eyes, he still seeks to live a righteous life, even if he's amongst those in Sodom and Gomorrah. He seeks to be a righteous, upright man. He is one of God's people, and. Therefore, he is one in whom God takes an intense interest. And his interest is part of his general activity to bring to fruition all that he has promised to Abraham. Friends, in our day, there's much that can attract our attention in the news. There's all that saber rattling that's going on in Ukraine or around Ukraine. At the moment, China is growing in power and might, and so many Western countries are worried about it. The British government seems to be mired in claims of hypocrisy and foolishness. And the U.S. seems to be struggling to assert its international authority, perhaps hindered by its own internal ideological divisions. I'm not making commentary on any of that, but I'm just observing that there are many things that could attract our attention in the news today. But the question that we always need to be asking as we look at these events, and we should look at those events, is what is the Lord doing with his church in all of these situations? What about the Christians in Ukraine and Russia who are being tempted to follow a nationalist ideology? I know some Ukrainian Christians 
only through Facebook, and I've met some of them face to face, but you know, Facebook will do. And I see some of their posts and their concerns. What about the church in China, which is being actively suppressed by the states, by the state by all accounts, yet seems to be flourishing? Or the church in the US or the United Kingdom that's constantly being tempted to sanctify and adopt the concerns of a secular society. But we should be thinking about about the church of Jesus Christ. What is God doing in the church of Jesus Christ in all of these situations? You see, in the midst of the turmoil of life and politics all around us, what we should be concerned about is not what is decided in Washington or London or Moscow or Beijing, but what God is doing in the lives of his people wherever they are. What is God doing in your life, in my life today? You people who have been chosen by God in Christ. You people have been given the promises of eternal life, but are now being taken on a journey. As the book of Hebrews tells us, We are a pilgrim people traveling to an eternal rest. Are you growing in faith and trust? Are you having your sins identified so that you can mortify them in the power of the Holy Spirit? What is God doing in your life to make you fit for heaven? And for his glory and fulfillment of all those promises. How we need to have a God consciousness in our day. How we need to have a Christ consciousness. To be thinking constantly of what the Lord is doing in our lives. Here's the second thing. To remember, secondly, that we are strangers in the world. In the next part of the story, um, Abraham hears about Lot in verse 13. And so he gathers all his allies and all his trained men of his household to pursue Lot's captors and rescue Lot and his family. And incidentally, we get a sense of the wealth of Abraham. You remember he developed, he grew in wealth when he was in, uh, in, in Egypt in chapter 12. He has... He can muster 318 well-trained men to fight. And and it's important to note here, these are not just farmhands that he has just enlisted. Go and pick up your sickles and let's let's go and do some damage. Uh, These are trained men, fighters, defenders. He has a small army at his disposal. And it may be that Kedar and his Four other friends had a much bigger army, but it tells you something about the qualities of these men and the power of God that he can take 318 of them and actually rescue Lot. And so the pursuit goes on. There is a a pursuit that takes them north to Damascus, and Abraham defeats those kings. He takes all the possessions back, he releases Lot and his family with all their possessions and returns back to the south. 
And I think Abraham shows remarkable character here. He, after all, he could have said to himself, well, you know, Lot, you, that's the life you chose, isn't it? You chose the, the fertile valleys. Just, you have to, you made your bed and you lie in it, as my mother used to say to me. You've made your bed and you lie in it. But, but I, Abraham doesn't do that. He, he was willing to risk his life and the life of his men and even his whole family, in order to rescue Lot and his family. And it's a remarkable story, I think, of courage and conviction, where he's willing to take steps. And it's such a remarkable contrast to chapter 12. Do you remember chapter 12, where Abram feared for his life? And so he said that his wife was his sister, and ended up his sister ended up going into the harem of Pharaoh uh, to dishonor her. So he feared for his life. But now he doesn't fear for his life anymore. He trusts God's promises that God will see him through. Now, what's the difference in this chapter? Well, it's simply that God, Abraham has a God's consciousness. Now, Abraham is an outsider. I wonder if you noticed uh, an interesting. Uh, phrase here. Abram is described as Abram the Hebrew. It's actually the first time that the word Hebrew appears in the Bible. It's the earliest use of the term. And it's an unusual description because as time goes on in the Bible, Hebrew becomes more narrowly defined as the people of Israel and the Jews, the Hebrews. But actually at this point, what it means is, and it There are different debates about where the word Hebrew comes from. But the most likely meaning of it is that he's an outsider. He's from over the river. He's a a stranger. And so he is, here's Abraham, this Hebrew, and he's known as a Hebrew, but he is an outsider. And we've seen that already. He's a stranger in a promised land. He doesn't own Canaan. Uh, He is in Canaan, but he doesn't own it yet. But he's been promised it. But at this moment, he is a stranger in the promised land. This is something that uh, the book of Hebrews takes up about all Christians. But he applies it to those in that great list in Hebrews Hebrews 11. He says, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Not just in the land now, but on the earth. This is what Christians are. This is what Abraham was. He was foreshadowing being a stranger and an alien in a foreign land. And Abraham comes to us as an example of what true faith looks like as strangers in an alien land. And it applies to the church today, that we are strangers in a foreign land. Many of us have been brought up in this country, and we consider ourselves uh, having our roots here in this country. Some of you haven't, I know. Some of you have your roots somewhere else. But, you know, we, we think about our home country as the place where we have roots. But the simple fact is, the day that you became a Christian is the day that you became a stranger to this land because your home, your true home, is actually in eternity, with, in heaven with God. 
And so any, any citizenship that we have here is only temporary and passing. Because your true identity is actually in heaven. You're a stranger in a strange land. And I wonder if that's how you see yourself today. As you work towards your, you know, you may have your plans for life, your career plans, you may have your mortgage plans, your house plans, what kind of house, what's your forever house that you're going to live in? This is the thing that people talk about in these programs. Not that I watch them. <laughs> have you found your forever home? And, you know, it's like we can have heaven on earth by having this wonderful home with all the mod cons and everything and design features and stuff. We have this great job, which we can give up when we like because we're making far too much money. And, you know, some people don't like that. We have our home here. and We rest all our hopes on, on the things of this earth and this life. But the Christian says, no, I'm a stranger here. I can, I can get rid of it at any time. I can let it go. Because I belong to heaven. I'm a stranger in this land. And I'm going to that place. And so I can leave it all behind if necessary. Because that's how you see yourself. Don't think for a second that that makes you a useless human being in society. Actually, Christians are the best citizens of this earthly life. They ought to be. We're not to be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly use. But look at Abraham here. He is a, he is a stranger. He is possessed of all the conviction uh, of a conviction about his family's ultimate destiny. And he also it leads to remarkable courage to make a difference in the society that he's in. He could have just said, I'm, I'm going somewhere else. You know, I don't need to worry about Lot. I'm going somewhere else. I have my God and I have my life and I can just not care about these. No, he doesn't do that. He acts. And does great things for God in the world. I think this, this is what the Bible teaches us, that as Christians really grasp what they are in Christ and their destiny in Christ, that they become the best citizens of any country that they're in. Because they, simply because they're committed to the things of God. Here's the third thing. Continue to trust the Lord and his promises. The final part of this book, 17 to 24, this chapter, 17 to 24, is the, the aftermath of the rescue. And two kings go to meet Abraham uh, in, on his return. One is the king of Sodom, and the other is Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, in the city of Sodom, we've already heard this. We've already been told, in verse 13 of chapter 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So this is a man, this king of Sodom, is a man who rules over a city that is marked by a flagrant, flagrant disregard for God and his ways. And so he comes to Abraham somewhat grumpily to do a deal with Abraham over the spoils of war. You see that in verse 21. Give me, the per- give me the persons, verse 21, but take the goods for yourself. So he's, he's carving up the spoils. 
But Abraham will have nothing from this man. On the other hand, Melchizedek is much more interesting. He approaches Abraham in quite a different way. He's the king of Salem. And Salem is probably an early name for Jerusalem. Salem at the end. But he comes to Abraham with gifts of wine and bread. Uh, And these are the kind of gifts that one king brings to another king. These are royal gifts. It's not just bread and water. It's bread and wine. And Abraham, therefore, is being accorded the honor of a king in the presence of Melchizedek. And then we also learn that Melchizedek is a priest of God, most high, the Most High God. And that means it's not just that he is a, it's not that he is a, a, a priest of a pagan deity. Because Abraham calls him the God Most High. And he calls him the Lord, Yahweh. So Melchizedek is talking about the sa- is a priest of the same God who is the God of Abraham. The one true God. And what is the job of a priest? What is Melchizedek's job as a priest? Well, the job of a priest is to intercede for others to God. Whenever you see a priest in the Bible, a priest intercedes on behalf of the people before God. And he makes representation to God on behalf of the people. And this is what Melchizedek does. He is a mediator between God and his people. He is a priest king. And then think about what his name means. Melchizedek means king of righteousness or something like that. Melech, king. Zedek, righteousness. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. And he is king of Salem, which is related to the word peace. So he is a king of righteousness, and he is a king of peace. And so Melchizedek, putting it all together, Melchizedek is an intriguing figure in the Old Testament, a priest king before the one true God, Yahweh, with an amazingly affecting name, who sits on the throne of Jerusalem, And is a priest mediating between God and man. And he seems to have come out of nowhere. And he comes to bless Abram, who has received God's promises. And to receive a gift from Abraham of a tenth of everything that he has. So who is this Melchizedek? Why is he in this story? Well, of course, if you are used to reading your Bible, and you all should be, you will have come across Melchizedek in other places in the Bible. If you were just reading this for the first time, you might pass over Melchizedek and think, yeah, I'm not, so what? (laughs) Who's this guy? But once you've read a bit more of the Bible, and you've got a bit more of it under your belt, as it were, you've begun to think about it a bit more, you may have noticed that Melchizedek becomes a really important figure. Psalm 110. A thousand years later, perhaps. A Psalm of David. And then in the New Testament, in Hebrews 5 through to 7, Melchizedek figures uh, 
centrally. Now, psalm 110 is significant because, it's a, as we said, it's a messianic psalm. It foretells the coming of the Messiah. In, David's, in it, David speaks to the Lord, Yahweh, speaking, speaks of the Lord, rather, speaking to his Lord, Adonai. And this Adonai, as becomes clear in the later, later in the psalm, is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. He is a king, and he is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And now the significance of this for David's time is that there already was a priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood, established by Aaron, uh, by Moses under, uh, with Aaron. But here's a new priesthood, a priesthood of the order of Melchizedek. And actually, it's an ancient priesthood. It goes back to the original Melchizedek. But Psalm 110 speaks of a future king who's going to sit on David's throne, who has the oath of God sworn over him that he is a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And God will not change his mind about that future king. Hold that in your mind a moment. So where else is Melchizedek mentioned? Well, Hebrews chapter 5 through to 7. And of course there, it's all about Jesus Christ. Who is the priest king. He is the priest king that David was looking forward to. But not a priest of the Aaronic order, but that of Melchizedek. Which teaches us, of course, that the Aaronic order of the Old Covenant was temporary and provisional. As was everything else about the Old Covenant, until Jesus Christ appeared to be the Son over the house of God. We mentioned that briefly in Hebrews chapter 3 on Thursday. That Jesus Christ comes as the Son over the household of God. But he is the one necessary priest to intercede for sinners. And he intercedes. By his once for all sacrifice of his own blood for sinners. He is the completely righteous priest king. And he is the king of peace who reconciles rebellious sinners with a holy God. Jesus Christ, a priest of the order of Melchizedek. So with all that in our minds, what do we say about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14? Well, it's like God has dropped into the story an early indication of all that he is going to do in fulfillment of his promises made first to Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3.15 and then made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. An indication that this king, this one who is going to come, this seed that is going to come, is a priest king of this order of Melchizedek. And you can see why it is that I think Abraham sees something of this when when Melchizedek comes to him with bread and wine and blesses Abraham. And Abraham rejoices in his own blessing, and he gives 
a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek. Now, it's important to say at this point that it's what I'm talking about here. I'm not saying, and we shouldn't say, this is Jesus, Melchizedek is Jesus in disguise, as though he's put on a, a disguise and turned up like a Christophany. If you understand covenant theology, you don't need to go to that extent. It is simply somebody whom God has put his hand on and set apart and said, This man stands for something I'm going to do in the future. So let's not say it's Jesus in disguise or anything silly like that. But it's one of these features that you find often in the Bible that God, as it were, does something in history that points to the big picture of what he's going to do in the end. And you can see that Abraham is crystal clear that God is involved in this and that Abraham is devoted to God and to his plans for the world. And Abraham responds to Melchizedek in the right way. He also responds to Sodom, the king of Sodom, in the right way. He says, I'm not having any of your gifts. I'm not having any of your blessings. I put my hand up to God. I'll only go with him. And so he will not allow someone who rejects the ways of God to get any glory lest that person says, I made Abraham rich. I blessed Abraham. God alone must get the glory. Friends, this is what happens when the Prince of Peace comes and ministers grace and blessings to you and to me. When Jesus Christ is your mediator, that relating to him, being rightly related to him, brings into your life a fierce desire for the glory of God. So that no matter what you do in life, no matter what you're able to achieve when you exert yourself and pursue your convictions, the sign that God is truly in what you're doing is that you want to give God all the glory in everything you do. This is what Abraham is teaching us here. And it's what we're seeing with Abraham is what John the Baptist used to say about Jesus. I must decrease, that he must increase. May our lives be taken up with the increase of God's glory in our lives. And may we see ourselves decreasing as he is glorified. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you for the uh, appearance of Melchizedek, which reminds us and points us forward to Jesus Christ. Thank you for his glory and the fulfillment of all the glorious promises that are made. We see them fulfilled in Jesus. We pray you'd help us to trust him, to seek his glory in everything, and repent of all our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.